My name is Karen, and I am a very grateful alcoholic. And because I believed the big book when it said, if you persist, remarkable things will happen, I have not found it necessary to take a drink or any mind or mood-altering chemical since April the 5th of 1980. I got to tell you guys that you give a whole new meaning to that line in the big book that says we are people who ordinarily would not mix. Uh, I remember my first sober Halloween party, and uh, it wasn't a pretty sight. <laughs> so uh, it just uh, it reminds me that we are truly a cast of characters when we get to this place, and and we pretty much remain so. A wonderful thing's going to happen tonight, or at least I hope so. My higher power is going to enable words to come out of my mouth and words to reach your ears. And I learned a long time ago that the two may not necessarily be the same thing. And I know you've been in meetings where that's happened to you. I heard a story that illustrated this not too long ago about a lady, and it was time for her yearly visit to her physician. And uh, because one of their cars was in the shop, they determined that her husband would take her and drop her off at the doctor and pick her up. So he dropped her off and came back at the point of time to get her. And when she got in the car, she was just beaming. And he said, well, you sure look happy. And she said, well, I am. He said, oh, you are, are you? He said, well, what are you so happy about? She said, that doctor told me I've got the body of an 18-year-old. He said, oh, he did, did he? What did he say about your 40-year-old ass? She said, your name was not even mentioned. So you see, God sees to it that we hear the message we're supposed to, not necessarily the one that's delivered. I was born the youngest and the only girl into a family of four. I have three older brothers. I was an unexpected child. My parents thought they were through having kids, and I came along eight years after my brother that is closest to me in age. So my three older brothers are eight, ten, and twelve years older than I. I know now that I was born into a family of active alcoholism. And my earliest memories are of hiding in my closet. Oh, thank you. Of hiding in my closet and hiding under my bed from my father's drunken rages. My father was a home drinker. He did his drinking at home. And he was a bellowing, raging, violent alcoholic. My mother did not drink at all. And my mother physically abused me. My earliest memories of when I was little was just wishing that I could somehow get out of there. And I would pray to God. My mother would drag me to church every Sunday. She was very religious. And I would pray to this God that I heard about that my daddy would stop drinking. Or that my mom would take me and we would move away from there. And that my mom would quit hurting me. And I thought that the God I prayed to did not answer my prayers. And I remember thinking that there must be something terribly wrong with me to be born into that situation, to live like that. And I made two decisions growing up in that home. I decided, one, that I would never marry an alcoholic when I grew up. And two, that I would never take a drink of alcohol. One out of two is not bad. I took my refuge in school. I was fortunate enough to make good grades, and school was my refuge. I loved school, I loved athletics, and I loved academics. And by the time I graduated from high school, I graduated second in my class, and I had a scholarship away to college. And I took college placement tests and placed out of my entire first year of college. So I was going to be able to finish college in just three years. And my thinking at that time was, thank God, I am finally getting out of this hell hole. I am finally getting away from these two people who have made my life totally miserable. 
I had an attitude that somebody owed me, and I was going to get even, and they were going to pay. And getting away from them, everything would be fine. My first night away at college, I got invited to this thing called a fraternity party. And they have these wonderful things at fraternity parties called kegs of beer and passion punch. And I took my first drink of alcohol, and it was love at first drink. It was like liquid gold coursing through my veins, and I thought, where have you been all my life? And I know now that it was the first experience, the first experience of that alcoholic insanity, that thing that given all I had seen and all I had experienced growing up with, that the first thing I did away from home was to pick up that drink of alcohol. I had my first blackout that night, and I lived from that day forward to drink. And you know what kind of alcoholic I became? I became a violent, raging, bellowing alcoholic. To give you an idea of how violent I could become, I kicked the windshield out of a car one time driving down the interstate because I wanted my date to let me out, and he didn't think that was a good idea. I don't know why. I, I was ready to get out of the car. So I kicked the windshield out, had high heels on, and, and kicked that sucker right out. He did stop the car after that. It's a miracle that I was not killed several, several times. I was the one who got in the fights at the bars and got asked to leave. And I could go on ad infinitum telling you of experiences and things that I did while I drank. But the reality is this is a program of recovery. It is not a recital of my drunken episodes. And the thing is, don't any of us get here. None of us gets here because things were going well. I got here because I was in pain, and I had been through what I believe was literal hell. And I hurt, and I had no place else to go. Somehow, I managed to graduate from college, but guess what? It didn't take me those three years. It took me four and a half. And you know why. Because of all my drinking. And I got out of college, and I had been accepted to law school. And this wonderful, tall, six-foot-two, blonde-headed, blue-eyed guy said to me, Hey, I got a job in San Antonio. Why don't you come live with me? And I had this thing about guys. Oh, did I have this thing about men. Mm, mm, mm. Do anything, it's called this, do anything but don't leave me. Do anything but don't leave me. And so law school got chucked, and I went to live with this six-foot-two hunk of a guy. I got my first teaching job, and things went well for a while. Not. He had met me in the depths of my disease. I don't know. I can't tell his side of it. He tells it much better than I do. He says he thought I had potential. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, I continued the same behavior. And being the wonderful, what I can say now, being the wonderful Al-Anon codependent that he was, he came up with the idea that if we got married, I'd get better, that I would settle down. And so we got married. We got married in October, October 27th to be exact, and by February, he stood at the front door of our house after a night of my drunken, rowdy, violent behavior. It had gotten us kicked out of a restaurant, and we came home, and he was trying to leave me. And the first time he tried to leave, I ran out and jumped across the car, across the windshield, holding on to the antenna, screaming, please don't leave me. <laughs> That'll get him to come back in every time. And, and he did come back in for a while. But he looked at me with tears streaming down his face. And he said to me, I can't live like this. There is something terribly wrong with you. 
something terribly, terribly wrong with you, and I can't live like this. And he left. And I knew with this man that when he left, he had left for good. And the thing was, nobody knew more than I did that there was something terribly, terribly the matter with me. I had felt it all my life. All my life growing up, I had had that sense that there was something different about me, that there was something not quite in place, that there was a hole that the wind blew clear through and that nothing could fill. I had felt lonely all my life, even those times when I wanted so desperately to be in and with it. And sometimes I was with the in crowd, and I still felt alone. Just the way that any alcoholic can be in a room with thousands of people and feel so utterly alone. And I blame those parents of mine. You know, the big book says it better than anything I could ever say, that years of living with any alcoholic is bound to make any wife and child neurotic, husband, whatever the case is. And it talks about the bitter misunderstanding and the fierce resentment and the disappointment and the feelings of disgust. And those were things that I had grown up with, and it was all I knew. And he left that night. And I decided what I had thought about many, many times, that the best thing for me to do would be to kill myself. I had seen tons of psychiatrists because I had always felt that there was something wrong with me. And by God, something would be wrong with you, too, if you'd grown up with those parents of mine. And so the psychiatrist had thrown lots of Valium my way. Now, but for the grace of God, for whatever reason, alcohol was my drug of choice, and I didn't pop that Valium. But by God, I saved it. Because, you see, I knew there was going to come a day. Suicide was my ace in the hole. If it ever gets too bad, if things ever catch up with me too much, I'll just commit suicide. I'll just commit suicide. And so that night I swallowed all the Valium and all the booze I had in the house. And I sat on my bed and waited to die. And you know, that deal about God working in mysterious ways is really true. Because I had the memory that night of a commercial I'd seen on television. And to this day, I don't know if the ad still exists. It's put out by Al-Anon Family Groups. And in the commercial, there is a couple that's arguing. And the voiceover at the end of it says, You know what his drinking is doing to him. Do you know what it's doing to you? Now, when I had seen that commercial, what I thought was, That's my parents. That's why I'm screwed up. It's them. It was all that arguing, all the damage they did to me. I'm calling this Al-Anon thing, by God. And then I thought, I better call 911 first. Actually, 911 didn't even exist. It was uh, just an emergency number. So I called and got the ambulance to come and get me. And I was taken to the hospital. I understand now that they would not have released me that night these days. But back then, they pumped my stomach, and uh, they asked me if there was anybody they could call. And to this day, when I think about that night and they ask me that question, is there anyone we could call, it probably speaks just about, for every one of us, the depth that this disease drives us to, because there was no one they could call. I had no friends, and I had cut ties with my family long ago. I had business associates, but I had no one who truly knew me. And so I had to say, no, there is no one you can call. And I went home, and I called that thing called Al-Anon. And I got the 24-hour answering service, and a wonderful lady, a wonderful lady called me back and talked to me. And I made my first meeting of Al-Anon the next day. Now, they were a bit suspicious. But, you know, they did what Al-Anons do best, love alcoholics. They loved me. They just loved me. And they welcomed me, and they said, you may want to go to these things called open AA meetings. We have a lot of them, and you're welcome to come. And the other thing that they did was that they taught me that my father had a disease, and it was the first time I had heard that.
that my father had a disease and that my mother had a disease too and that our entire family was affected by this disease. And so I went to those Al-Anon meetings and I went to those open AA meetings and I found a funny thing happened. At those open AA meetings, I would find myself going over and over and over again and tears would flow when the alcoholics would talk because what I was doing is that critical thing that happens with us when we share our experience, strength, and hope. I was identifying for the first time in my life I was identifying. You were speaking with your hearts, and I was hearing with mine. And so the walls began to crumble, slowly but surely. And finally I said to this one lady that I'd just fallen in love with at those open AA meetings, she was an alcoholic, she was one of them, and I said to her, I said, you know, I said, I think I might have a problem with alcohol. She said, oh, thank God. We're going to a conference this weekend. You're going. I said, I am? She said, yeah. And God love her. She put me in that car, and we went off to that conference. And by Sunday morning of that conference, April 5th of 1980, I was able to say and admit to you and to my innermost self that my name is Karen, and I am indeed an alcoholic. Now, I thought everything was going to get real good because I quit drinking. Isn't that the way it works? I thought my husband would come back and that things would get real good. And I said to my sponsor, I said, I I don't get it. I said, I'm hurting. I feel real lousy. This is hard. And she said, yeah, it is. It is hard. I said, well, what do I do? She said, you're going to work the steps. Have you read the big book yet? No. Do you have one? I said, yeah. She said, go home and read it. Don't call me until you have read the first 164 pages of that book. Highlight anything that stands out to you. Write in the margins. Do whatever you have to. But you read the first 164 pages of that book until you find yourself. Well, it didn't take me long. I read Bill's story, and that about did it. And so I called her and we got together. And I said, I really want my husband to come back. And she said, don't worry about that. If you don't find yourself and if you don't get sober, he's not going to have anything to come back to. Don't call him. Don't do anything except what your responsibilities are. You hit 90 meetings in 90 days. You read this book and you start working the steps. And you concentrate on recovery. And she brought out that line. She made me read that line out loud to her that said, When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out physically and mentally. And I began to realize that what was happening to me was I was feeling feelings for the first time in my life. I love the way the big book puts it it when it talks about the psychiatrist that they ask, Is there any hope for alcoholics? And it's talking about Jung. It's talking about Carl Jung, one of the famous of all times, and he talks about the spiritual awakening that's necessary, that is necessary for our recovery, and he talks about the huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, and that's what I was feeling for the first time in my life, emotional displacements and rearrangements. I had always sought to escape feeling anything. Just numb me out, please, and don't make me feel. And what happened was I stopped drinking and I started feeling. And so I began to work the steps. I love what it says in the big book when it says, We feel that elimination of drinking is but a beginning. A much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our homes, occupations, and affairs. I thought, what principles? And I began to discover the principles in the steps and in the traditions. And by watching those of you who were my living examples of this program, you mothered me, you fathered me, you were my brothers, you were my sisters, but most of all, you loved me enough to tell me the truth 
even when I didn't want to hear it. And so I sat down with my sponsor and I began to work the steps, and she asked me if I could admit that I was powerless over alcohol. I knew without a doubt that I was absolutely powerless where alcohol was concerned. What I didn't have, quite have a grip on was that I was powerless, period. I knew that I had no mental defense, like the big book says, against the first drink. I would say I'm not going to drink and I'd be drinking in the next five seconds. Or I'd say I was only going to have one or two and as soon as I had one in me, all I wanted to do was drink into utter oblivion. And so I knew that I was powerless over alcohol. But that idea of being powerless, I wasn't real comfortable with. Because I like to think of myself as real capable and real able, I told her. A can-do kind of person. And she said, you can't do any of it without the help of a higher power. And you better get that idea in your head now. You're powerless, not helpless, she said. I thought about that, and it occurred to me a long time ago that that's exactly what it's like when I flip on a light switch. I'm not helpless. I can flip on the light switch. If it's dark and I don't like it, I can flip on the switch. But I do not supply the power that makes the light. Of myself, I cannot do it. And it helped me tremendously with what it is to be powerless. I wanted to change more than anything. But I did not know how. The big book says lack of power was our dilemma. And then it tells me that the main object of the book is to help me find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. She asked me how unmanageable my life was. I said, my life isn't unmanageable, other than the fact that my husband's left me. I've still got a job. I've still got a roof over my head. I've got a car. My life's not unmanageable. She said, go home and read the chapter to the agnostics and see if you can find something you relate to there. And I hit that dang paragraph that says, we were having trouble with our personal relationships. We could not control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and depression. We could not make a living. We were unhappy. We were full of fear. We had a feeling of uselessness. We couldn't be of real help to others. And I said, oh, you know, <clears throat> that's unmanageability. All these voices that meet in my head and talk and clamor, that's unmanageability. My thoughts racing like Bill described in his story, that insanity, and I couldn't stop it. That's unmanageability. And so I could truly say, oh, yeah, my life's unmanageable. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. And then we came to that thing, step two, that says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. She said, what's sanity mean to you? I said, well, I'm an English teacher. Sanity has its roots in the Latin to mean whole. Sanity is wholeness. She said, okay, so you don't have trouble with the sanity part. I said, right. But I did, more than anything, want to be restored to wholeness. The thing I had trouble with was the power greater than myself. Because that little girl who had prayed to God all those years ago and believed that he didn't answer her prayers had quit believing that God cared about her or that God even existed. And I turned my back on God in anger long, long before I hit this program. And I thought my mother was a fool for going to that church she went to. And I thought she was a hypocrite for treating me the way she treated me and then going to church and acting good. And it was all so confusing to me. And I said, I don't know about this God deal. I don't know about this power greater than myself. I don't know if I can do that. She said, Karen, what does the program say about old ideas? I said that we have to let go of them, absolutely. And what I realized that night was that I stood at the turning point. My turning point was exactly what the big book said. Either I was going to accept that God is or he isn't. That God is either everything or he is nothing. 
what is our choice to be? And so it was that I decided to fire whatever concept of God I had and hire a new one. Because what I believed was not that I had a higher power, but that you did. Because when I looked in your eyes, someone was home. And I believed that something was working for you. And what I had done is exactly what the big book said. I had become willing to believe. And so I was on my way. And the thing I realize now, and especially as I've sponsored people through the years, is that it was going to be terribly difficult for me to take that third step and turn my life and my will over to the care of God as I understood Him. When the way I understood God was that God didn't care about me enough to answer my prayers. That God had abandoned me and so I abandoned Him. That God was this vengeful Zeus-type being that would strike me with lightning. It was going to be very difficult for me to turn my life and my will over to the care of that God unless I let go of my old ideas absolutely. And so the God that I turned my life and my will over to, as I understood him, was a God that I did not understand, but was willing to believe worked in your life. My sponsor asked me to take that third step on my knees out loud with her. And something happened to me. To this day, the only thing I know to tell you is that a woman of 25 years old who did not believe in God went down on her knees and arose knowing absolutely that she has a higher power. And that higher power is indeed a God of my understanding who loves me and who loved me enough to bring me to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. What happened to me, I realize now, is on page 63 in the big book. It says, we began to sense the flow of his spirit into us. And then it says something that made me real jumpy. We were reborn. Whew! That sounded like way too religious for me the first time I read it. And yet that's exactly what happens, because when I look at Appendix 2 about the spiritual awakening... And explain to me that a spiritual awakening is a personality change sufficient to bring about a recovery from alcoholism. I thought, well, yeah. If you're going to have a personality change, you're going to have to be reborn, Karen. Because otherwise it's not going to work. You're going to have to quit doing things the way you've done them. Or you're never going to make it. And so it dawned on me that that's precisely what was happening But I was just like a baby. It's like baby steps. And growth is hard. It's like when babies learn to walk and they stumble around and they fall. And it's tough. And I didn't want sobriety to be tough. I wanted sobriety to be a cakewalk. I thought it was all going to be easy. And and the wonderful news is a lot of it, the majority of it, 99% of it has been great. But the program really says it. It's a design for living. It dawned on me somewhere around the third step that the steps weren't about getting sober. The first step was, that's a prerequisite. Getting sober was a prerequisite to working the steps. What the steps are about for me is learning how to live so that I don't have to drink. It's learning how to live so that I can stay sober. So that I can stay sober. Says that it's a design for living that really works. Also says it's a design for living that works in tough going. It's an interesting thing. It also tells me that the spiritual life is not a theory. I have to live it. And that what I am given is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual growth. Well, excuse me, I told my sponsor, I did not come into the program to grow spiritually. I came to get sober. She said, growing spiritually is precisely how you're going to get sober. Okay, I said. 
She reminded me that I was willing to go to any lengths, even though I didn't think so. And I hit that thing called the fourth step. Hello. Whoa. And I squirmed because, see, I'd, I'd done some things that uh, mm, nobody knew about. And nobody was going to know about those things that the big book talks about as being the worst items in stock. And that I was going to go to my grave with them. But it was pointed out to me that I was going to have a great deal of difficulty staying sober if I didn't do the fourth and the fifth. And so I did put the pencil to paper, precisely like the big book says. And I sat there in that fifth step and was totally honest with another human being for the first time in my life. Totally honest with her about how easy it was for me to lie, and I didn't understand that. Totally honest with her about how easy it was for me to be dishonest, not just with lying, but in every other area of my life. Business dealings, money, all of that wreckage of the past, and poured it all out there. To have this woman who today has 43 years of sobriety sit there and look at me and say, I love you, and I respect you for having the courage to change the things you can. I admire your honesty. And she said, if you will keep this level of honesty, rigorous honesty, you just might make it. And she was right. Now, a funny thing came out of that inventory and that fifth step, those things called character defects and shortcomings. And I didn't like it. My sponsor had just done this wonderful job of making a list of all those that I had seen as well as others she picked up on. And she handed me that list so that I could take it home and uh, began on my sixth and seventh A lot of my character defects were things I did not want to give up. A lot of them were survival skills. A lot of them were defense mechanisms. A lot of them were old ideas that stood in the way of my usefulness to God and my fellow man. One of them was that I had this thing about you can't trust when things get good. You can't enjoy it when things get good. Because what that means is pretty soon the rug's going to get jerked out from under you. Another thing I had was you can't trust women and you can't trust men. Now, that led to a bit of a problem because then there's nobody to trust. And the thing I really realized was that I also did not trust myself. Because the thing I really realized, I thought I had all these abandonment issues. I was the one who had abandoned me. Time and time again, when I had said, I will never do so and so, I won't do this, I won't do that, I won't sleep with this guy. I'm sorry, there are kids present, I forgot. I won't do this, I won't do that. And I went right ahead and did it. You know, that thing in us that knows. And I broke my heart. I broke my own heart again and again. I was the one who had abandoned me. I was the one who came up short of things like faith and things like trust. What I had a long suit in was things like being cynical and skeptical and never trusting. So my shortcomings were that I came up very short in the areas of love and faith. I saw that I withheld love to try to make other be others behave. Well, that's fine. If you're going to be that way, I just won't love you. And I saw how terribly damaging those things can be. And yes, there were a great deal, a great many of those things that are what I call that cash register stuff. There were people I owed money to. There were people I had stolen money from. There were relationships that needed to be mended. There was a great deal of guilt and shame. 
I don't think, I can't speak for men. I can speak as a woman, though. I don't know that I've ever met a woman who hits Alcoholics Anonymous who doesn't have a great deal of guilt and shame. I had so much guilt and shame that I thought I would never be able to forgive myself. And I could hear the words that God forgave me, that other people forgave me. I heard the words, but it gets stuck right here. I just couldn't swallow it to where it got down here and I believed it in my heart. And one night when I was doing the seventh step prayer, and it talks about asking God, telling God that I'm now ready for him to have all of me, good and bad. I didn't like that part about the good, did you? I just wanted God to take the bad stuff and I'd hold on to the good. Seemed like a perfect deal to me. But it didn't work that way. Surrender is giving it all. And so I had to give God the good and the bad. And then it says about praying that he now remove every defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness. And what finally hit me was that my guilt and my shame were standing in the way of my usefulness to God and my fellows. Because what the big book tells me is that giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle. And that my real purpose is to be of service to God and my fellows. And that was going to be difficult to do if I was blocked with a great deal of guilt and shame. And so I had to ask God to somehow help me be willing to forgive myself and show me how to do that. And then those amends came. Whoa. Because my parents were on that list. I owed my parents a great deal of amends. I had been a belligerent, rebellious teenager who said terrible, terrible things to my parents. I called them names that I would not want to repeat in this room tonight. I stole money from my parents. I once changed a check that my mother had written for me when I was in college for $200 so I could buy books, and I changed that check to 2000 so I could party. She could have prosecuted me big time, and she did not. I owed my parents a lot of amends. And I wanted to say, yeah, 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 but what about the wrongs they did me? And my sponsor pointed me to that part in the big book that said, it may be that others have wronged us. Can we accept that they are spiritually sick? My father had a disease. My mother had a disease. My family had a disease called alcoholism. On this side is the alcoholic, and on this is the codependent. It's all the same disease, and it affects the entire family. And the big book told me to take the bit in my teeth and clean my side of the street. And so I called my mother and my dad, and I asked them if they'd like to come for the holidays. My father was still a practicing alcoholic. They gladly accepted my invitation, and my father white-knuckled it through the entire holidays. He did not drink in my home. And this continued for several years. I would have my parents come for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and every single time, my father would white-knuckle it through those holidays. And then one year... Christmas time, I decided it really ought to be my brother's turn, one of them. There were three of them, after all, and I was the one who kept having them. And none of them wanted to do it. And my dad called and said, are we going to come for Christmas? And I said, because you taught me how to love unconditionally, because you loved me when I was unlovable. I said, sure, Dad, come on. And he said, great, I got something to show you. And my dad walked in my house, and he gave me a hug, and he put a one-year chip in my hand. My father had been sober and alcoholic synonymous for one year. He had just taken his fifth step already, already with his sponsor. We lived in San Antonio at the time, and the weather's warm there at Christmas, and my dad and I were able to take long walks. 
and my father began to tell me the story of his life. I had never met my grandparents. My father had kept us away from them on purpose. My grandfather was a practicing alcoholic. And I began to understand the man that I had so wrongly judged. I began to understand what he was about. And they went home and I got a letter at the end of January that read, Dear Karen, I need to make amends to you. For the years of your childhood and the years of your life that my alcoholism robbed you of. I want you to know how happy I was the day you were born. We finally had the girl we'd always wanted. I want to thank you for Christmas. It was the best Christmas I've ever had. And most of all, I want to thank you for the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am so proud of you. I got a call on February 1st. My father had had a massive heart attack. I flew immediately to where he was. He was conscious. We were all there. We were able to talk and share. We drove the nurses crazy because all the members of his AA group kept coming in and out of ICU. It's like one big constant AA meeting. And then one afternoon, it was just my dad and I. As a little girl, I had always been afraid of my father. And one of the things I had written in my inventory was how sad I was that I'd never gotten to sit in my father's lap and never had him hold me. And my dad was kind of sitting up, you know how they do those hospital beds, to a sitting position. He was feeling a little better that day. And I said, Daddy, I want to sit in your lap. And he patted his leg. And I crawled up there. And I put my arms around him. And he put his arms around me. And I told my dad the truest words I've ever said. I thanked him for being my father. And I told him how much I loved him. You were the father, the best father I could have ever had, I said, because you were the father I was supposed to have. I wouldn't be who I am today had you not been who you are. My father died that night, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. How do you get there from where I was, from where he was? Twelve steps. One step at a time, one day at a time. I want to tell you also that while I was busy working those steps, one day the six-foot-two blonde blue-eyed guy came by the house to pick up some things. He was going to file for divorce, final papers. And he noticed something different. And he said he'd like to stay. And I said, well, I'd like to give that a try. Let me call my sponsor. Check in with my sponsor about everything. And so it was that we tried to make a go of it. And so it was that we realized we had no idea who the other one was. He had married me in the depths of my disease. I didn't know who he was, and he didn't know who I was. And you know, it's that same thing that happens with all of us. The alcohol's gone, but all the same problems are still there. And you're still doing the same stuff, and still having those emotional battles, because I don't know about you, but emotional balance, like the 12 and 12 talks about, did not exactly come immediately. And so we would have these emotional blowouts. And one night, we were arguing. 
seemed like the same old, same old, except I wasn't quite, I wasn't doing the violent stuff. But we were arguing, and it was ugly. And I started crying. I said, I don't know if we're going to make it. I said, I told you I'd try for a year, but I don't know if we're going to make it. And he said, I don't know if we are either. He said, what are we going to do? And you know how you just keep doing these things. You just keep putting in time. You go to the meetings. You read the big book. You get up every morning and you get on your knees and you thank God for being sober and you take those first three steps and you say that third step prayer. And you pause when agitated or doubtful, just like the big book says, when it tells us on 86, 87, and 88 exactly how to live every day of our lives. Don't even have to figure that one out anymore. Eureka. And it says you pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for an intuitive thought. And finally, all that putting in time paid off. And I said to him, you know what? There's this thing called the third step prayer from Alcoholics Anonymous. Would you pray with me? Why is it the most intimate relationship in the world, a marriage? And he and I had never prayed together. We'd never even talked about God. And two scared kids in their 20s got on their knees. And we took the third step. And we turned our lives and our wills and our marriage over to the care of God as we understood him. Thank God for the big book in what it says. When it says, though you and your, I'll change it to spouse, says your wife, may have found, you know, relief to the drinking problem. All will not be well at once. Gee, no. Said many of the old problems will still be with you. Yes, indeed. Plus a few new ones. And then it talks about that you'll have these emotional workouts. It says, and that these workouts should be regarded as part of your education. And there it comes again. It says, for thus you will be learning to live. I hadn't known what it was like to disagree with a person and yet still love them. To disagree and yet not get personal in my attacks. And then on the next page it really hit me. Because it says, concentrate on your own defects and you will have little need to criticize the other. Live and let live. What an order. I can't go through with it. Because they're so glaring. Could I just like point out one or two? Okay. Not even. And you know, we got a tremendous amount of help from Tradition 2, especially, where it says for our group purpose, for our marriage, for our family purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself, or she, or it, depending on your definition of God, as God may express in our conscience. And it was absolutely amazing how awkward it felt to pray together the first time. And yet, the bond that was made. Because we had surrendered. We had surrendered. And you know, we were right. Our marriage was over. The marriage we had had was dead. It was time for it, too, to be reborn. And lo and behold, it was. And the thing I realized was that I had been looking for, for from my husband... Something that he didn't have to give. The same way that I had been expecting my parents all those years to give me something that they didn't have to give. It's not that they wouldn't, it's that they couldn't. I'm not a victim of my childhood. I'm a product of it. That's all there is to it. There is no one to blame. No one to blame. It's not that they deliberately did it. They didn't know any other way to do it. They were sick. And when I began to understand, I had done the same thing. And the amazing thing that happened was that once I came into these rooms and you loved me unconditionally, that's what I was starved for. That's what I'd been looking for. That's what the hole needed to be filled with. And what I was really looking for is exactly what these 12 steps are all about. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result, not a result, the result. That's a definite article. The result of these steps. That's what had been missing from my life. 
I had been living almost without a soul. You know, the big book talks about that it's that that in writing of it, that they've written a book that's spiritual as well as moral. And that's precisely what I needed. I needed to know that I had a soul and that I was responsible for doing things a certain way and that I had a conscience and that I had to quit abandoning me. That this in here, that knower that knows, knows. And I need to listen to it. I want to tell you real quickly that my husband and I began to have, want to have children after we saw that our marriage was going to make it. And I, got, I was lucky I got pregnant pretty quickly. And I told him, and we were so excited, and we went out and bought a Christmas tree. And I lost that baby on Christmas Day. And they said to me, oh, don't worry about it. A lot of women have a miscarriage. We don't really worry until you've had three. I got pregnant again pretty quickly. I had another miscarriage. I got pregnant again. I carried, I had twins. I carried them four months. They said, I think you got a problem. We better start running tests. They ran every test imaginable on my husband and I. We felt like laboratory animals. They couldn't find anything wrong. Just keep trying. Something will work itself out. I got pregnant again. I miscarried. I got pregnant again. I miscarried. We began to look at adoption. I don't even have time to tell you what all we went through with that. We had a lady stop at the last minute, withdraw on us. At the very last minute, she withdrew. My ninth pregnancy, I passed four months. We thought I had it made. We knew it was a little girl. I carried her almost six months. I named her for my grandmother, and we buried her. And I said, damn you, God. Why me? Why me? I got sober. I work the steps. I go to meetings. I sponsor people. I do service work, God. I do service work. Nobody likes to do service work. Why me? I've surrendered this thing over and over again to you, God. I've said, if I'm not supposed to have a baby, okay. I'll mother women in this program the way that I've been mothered. I'll do it through sponsorship. I'll do it through my teaching. Whatever it is I'm supposed to do. But take away this desire that keeps coming back again and again and again. You know when you know. And that desire would come back and God would not take it. And all I could do a lot of times was come into the meetings and have you guys hold me. And tell me to take it one day at a time. I had 11 miscarriages. My husband got transferred to Indianapolis, and one day I was unpacking boxes, and I said, uh-oh, I think I are pregnant. You've been pregnant 11 times, trust me, you know. This was number 12. I went into a room and sat down to practice the 11th step, because that's what I've been told to do, to get still to pray and to meditate. The big book tells me I shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer. Meditation was hard for me in the beginning because I didn't know how to be still. I knew how to do. I didn't know how to be. Tell me how to do be. Then I'll, then I'll do it. But to just be? Oh, my God, what do you do? Be still. Okay. You know that deal about be still and know? And I'd sit there and say, be still and know What? What is it I'm supposed to know? And then I'd start trying to figure it out. You know how we do. It gets quiet up there. Got to figure it out. And then, you know, I think I'd get something. And you know how it is. You're making that up. That's impossible. All that stuff. But I got still. And I knew that it was going to be okay. And to make a long story short, I gave birth to a healthy eight-pound baby boy on January 19th of 1993. I was 38 years old. 
I am 41 now, he is three, and boy, oh boy, God knew I had to be sober this long to handle a three-year-old. <laughs> he is the delight of my life. His name is Austin for the capital of Texas because that's where I'm originally from, born and raised. And he is a true sobriety baby. And he is most of all a gift directly from Alcoholics Anonymous and my higher power. He knew where I was coming tonight. He wanted to be with all those people, as he calls them. He loves AA. Somebody once asked me, gee, but, but he'll never know what, what it was like for you. And I said, yes, thank God, because the buck stopped here. Because I was able, because my higher power saw fit to get me to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And by the grace of God, I've been able to stay sober. And by the grace of God, he will never see me anything but sober. I want to close tonight with something that happened to me shortly before we moved to the Midwest, which, by the way, I do like now. Um, didn't at first. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my husband is a fly fisherman. And we went on a trip to Colorado um, just to kind of celebrate the promotion and transfer that was bringing us to Indiana and to get away for a while. And so he, the deal was he wanted to go fly fishing, if you want to know the truth. And so uh, the deal usually is that he would fish, and I sit on the bank and read my books and, you know, do my deal. And so that particular day he had on all the stuff. And he's out in the middle of this, you know, trout stream fishing and doing all the right stuff, but he's not catching any fish. Well, it was unusual because I decided to fish that day. So he gives me, I don't know, rigs up some little old podunk rod and reel, and I'm over there on the bank, and I throw it in, and wham, got a fish. <clears throat> and it's a brown trout. And the deal with me is since I don't like to fish, and I don't like to eat fish, I want them put back. And I don't want to have to take them off the hook. So Cody has to come over and get the fish off the hook. So I'm yelling, Cody, Cody, get over here, get the hook out of his mouth and put him back. And this fish is such a fighter. It's flipping, it's flopping, it's moving, it's grooving. And Cody said, hold it still, hold it still. I said, I can hold it still. You know, he, he gets the fish's mouth, it's bleeding, pitiful looking thing, and finally he gets it in the water, gets the hook out, and I'm like, is it alive? He said, yeah, and the fish goes on its way. Well, now ordinarily I would have stopped fishing after this, but I didn't. I go right back, throw in the podunk rod and reel, wham, get a fish. This time it's a rainbow trout. Beautiful rainbow trout. Cody, Cody, I got a fish. Come here and get it off the hook. This fish lays perfectly still in my hands. Cody takes the hook out, puts the fish in the water. Fish goes on its merry way. Now, I'm no dummy. I go over on the bank. I say, I get it, God. I'm the brown trout. Life throws me a hook, and I flip, and I flop, and I squirm, and I resist. And I want to fix it. And I want my will, my way. Self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our difficulty. Rather than knowing what the rainbow trout knew. See, it wasn't the, it's not the change, it's not the hook, it's my resistance to it that causes me the pain. And the rainbow trout knew that. And the rainbow trout knew what it says in the big book. After that line that says, what I said at the beginning, if we persist, remarkable things will happen. The next line says, when we look back, we realize that the things we put in God's hands have turned out far better than anything we could have ever planned. Follow the dictates of your higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. And the rainbow trout knew. It knew that if it doesn't hold still, God can't help us. That God will remove the hooks of life sometimes sooner, sometimes later. But that eventually, this too shall pass. And I think that it knew too, if you don't mind my quoting a verse from another good book, 
that says, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along your way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. I know without a doubt that something was guarding me and saving me from death in all the alcoholic insanity that I practiced. And I know that the place God had prepared for me was this room, this place of Alcoholics Anonymous, this fellowship. And I know, too, that I have been blessed by the presence of angels in my life because I am looking at them now. I've heard people say that we are the chosen people. I don't think so. Because I don't think God picks favorites. I think all people are God's chosen people. I don't think God knows any difference in any of us. But I do believe that we are a chosen people in a certain way. And that we are God's chosen people, most of all, because we chose back. We were lost out there. And we came in here. We stood at the turning point, And we chose back. My name is Karen, and I'm an alcoholic. And I thank you 